I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast with Jack Miller. Keep up the good work. Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Miller. This is episode 17, and what's going on right now in the world is that the presidential nominating contest has gotten started with some voting. The Iowa caucus took place last week, though the final results aren't really yet known. As I'm recording this, the New Hampshire primary is just a few days away. So with voting going on, the voter is the focus for a few weeks here on the Pothole Problem podcast. Today, instead of talking about voters, though, I'm going to be talking about their opposite, non-voters why people don't vote, the different groups, and the factors that lead each of these groups to have either zero or low voter turnout. This episode is an interview conducted by my son Zane with me, and it's pretty self-explanatory, and it's also pretty long, so I'm just going to get right into it. I'm Zane Emerson, here back on the Pothole Problem Podcast, interviewing Jack Miller, my dad. It's good to be here. It's good to be here with you. So today's topic is people who don't vote. How has voter turnout changed over time, and what factors have contributed to those changes? That's an excellent question. Initially, in the United States, voting, of course, was limited to property-owning white men. And even with that as the only eligible voters, voter turnout wasn't very high. It wasn't really until the modern party system started in the 1820s with Jackson organizing the Democratic Party and putting together kind of a grassroots organization with all of the things that we recognize today as a modern party, and at the same time, the spread of voting rights to non-property-owning white men, so essentially universal white male suffrage, voter turnout at that point went pretty close to 80 to 90% within a decade. And it stayed that way for the rest of the 19th century. And that was largely because the parties were so good at organizing their members to turn out. In fact, that was a big part of what Jackson and his cohorts were all about in terms of organizing the Democratic Party. They wanted to assure that they got a lot of people to the polls. It wasn't enough, of course, in a democracy to get people to agree with you. They have to go and vote for you. So voter turnout was essentially the purpose of the party organization. What allowed the parties to get such high turnout was that the United States had a patronage system. So that means that the winners of elections could use their victory to provide jobs, public contracts, and connections for their supporters. So people who supported a party, they had a direct material interest 
in going and voting. There was literally something in it for them. Both parties made sure that their supporters knew that turning out to vote wasn't just supporting their ideas or their policies. It actually was something that would rebound to you personally or your brother-in-law who would get to be a postmaster or your father's company that would get a public contract. So patronage and public contracts were a way that parties could say, hey, vote for us. If we win, you get good stuff. If we lose, vote for us next time so we win and you get good stuff. The biggest blow to voter turnout was the passage of the Pendleton Civil Service Act, which essentially ended the spoils system. To the victor goes the spoils, and the winner gives out the jobs and the public contracts. The Pendleton Civil Service Act was the first of a series of pieces of legislation that began to dismantle the spoils system. At the same time, there was a lot of journalistic investigation going into corruption in public contracts and party machines, and there was a lot of public attention being paid to that and a reform movement during the progressive era to essentially clean up government. Between the Civil Service Act getting rid of the spoil system and political reforms getting rid of corruption and party machines, voters no longer really had that direct personal material interest in voting and voter turnout rates plummeted. By the 1920s, voter turnout was down to below what it is today. Passage of the 19th Amendment granting women the right to vote gave a bump to the voter turnout rate. Again, an expansion of the eligible electorate and what happened was a lot of women turned out to vote and women's participation rates are actually higher than men's today. Women make up 51% of the population and in a typical year they make up about 55% of the electorate. So women entering the democratic system in 1920 gave a slight boost, but it did not bring voter turnout rates back up to their height of 80 to 90% in the mid to late 19th century. And really, since the 1930s, we've had voter turnout rates ranging from 50 to 60 percent for presidential elections and from 40 to 55 percent for midterm elections. We provide a link in the show notes to a chart that shows voter turnout over time. So if you want to have a visual of this, you can check that out. You talk about how people had direct material interest before in voting, which made voter turnout so high. What would you say are some of the main reasons that people don't vote today? There are a number of reasons why people don't vote. Typically, we have this criticism of non-voters, that they're not doing their civic duty. I think that part of the reason why we have that criticism is that following the era when voters had a direct material stake in voting for a particular party, our political society had to find another argument to convince people to vote. And that argument shifted from you've got something in it to it's your civic duty. And I think that one of the interesting things about that is that that speaks to certain people and it doesn't speak to other people. And for sure, the way the humans are constructed, a kind of an abstract duty, like this is what you should do to support the democratic society, is not as powerful of an incentive as if you vote for this party and contribute to their victory, you'll get something out of it. Now, of course, when you vote for a party that supports policies that benefit you, you will for sure get something out of it, though it's a lot less direct than when there was a patronage system and when there was public contracts that went to the victorious party. People are basically being motivated to vote because it's the right thing to do. A lot of people, that doesn't move them. Now, more specifically, I think that there are different categories of non-voters. I would say the first category would be people who don't vote because they actually don't feel like the political system works for them. 
They feel alienated. They're disenchanted. They don't think that it matters who wins the election. And to certain people, I think they're right about that. You know, it may not matter whether the Democrats or Republicans control Congress or the White House if you feel as though the policies that would benefit you are never going to get enacted. There's also, I think, a related group to that, which is people who really don't like the choices available to them. They would prefer to vote for a Green Party candidate or a Libertarian Party candidate or a Socialist Party candidate or some other party. And they know that those parties, while they exist and they often field candidates, that they never win in our two-party system. So if you don't think that the choice between the Democrats and the Republicans speaks to your political preferences, again, you're not going to vote. You may not be fully alienated from the political system where you're just like, well, it doesn't matter who's in in charge because I'm not going to get anything anyway. But you might just say, well, the choice is too limited. I'm not going to pick. You've kind of touched on how the political system discourages people from voting. But I'd like to zero in on that just for a second. And like, what are the specific things about the political system that you think make people discouraged from voting? If you are a minority group and you look at government policy and you say, well, it's never really helped my community. It's never been powerful enough to really do anything that's worth my loyalty. Then you're going to look at the government and see maybe an enemy. At best, you're going to see an ineffectual force. And so why would you feel like you should put your own personal energy into guiding that force? You know, alienation ranges from, yeah, the government just really, it doesn't, has never really done much for my community, for my family, for the way of life that I think should be pushed forward. Or the government is outright an enemy. It's hurt my community. It has made the people that I care about has made their lives worse off. No matter who wins, whichever party is in control, Democrat or Republican, there are certainly a lot of people who say, well, the government is not helping and they're making my life worse. So that's, I think, a very powerful force. And what other alternative do people who feel that way have? And the argument, well, it's your civic duty to do so. I'm not sure that anybody in that community would argue back, but this is what they could argue. They could say, well, isn't it the government's civic duty to serve every community in the nation and the government is failing to live up to that civic duty? So don't get all self-righteous and tell me that I'm failing to live up to my civic duty. So it seems like a lot of the things you're talking about revolve around this idea of apathy. But I would say it's really more alienation than apathy. I want to speak to apathy because I think that one of the things that can produce apathy as distinct from alienation, which is a kind of a positive dislike of the government and a a strong feeling that you're not being served. Apathy can come from actually the opposite, which is satisfaction. That's another group of voters in a prosperous, stable society like the United States are people who are fine with how things are. And they feel as though the government is doing just an okay job and their life is fine. They're living at a standard of living that they're satisfied with. And why put in all that time and energy that it would take to be an informed voter and an engaged citizen when you're pretty much fine with how things are going? Again, the model of you need to be an engaged citizen, you need to vote, your vote is your voice. All of that stuff is intended to motivate people to vote based out of duty rather than self-interest. And it doesn't necessarily speak to people who say, well, yeah, it's things are fine. I'm good with how things are. And I know that it would take a lot of my time and energy to become this kind of model engaged citizen. So I'm just going to be a non-voter. And I think that that group is often disparaged. But I would push back against that disparagement and say, if people are not voting because they're largely satisfied, what they actually are doing 
is they're voting for things being roughly the same as they are. They're voting for the status quo and the status quo being the two-party system, the status quo being the kind of government that we have, the status quo being a relatively stable economy and a relatively stable nation. That's a pretty big group. And I think that one of the things that's interesting is that we've had a prosperous and stable nation for a long time. And if people feel as though stuff is going just fine in America and they don't want to vote, then they're making, I think, a decent choice for themselves. Okay, so we've got kind of this smaller group who's like, things are going fine, I don't need to vote. But probably the vast majority of people who don't vote are saying, I feel alienated, the system doesn't benefit me, nothing's going to change, nothing's going to benefit me if I vote one way or the other. I don't really know, you know, here's one of the things. I have not seen any kind of attempt to break down non-voters into these subcategories in terms of research. So I don't know. And I would say that in my ballpark estimation, those two groups are roughly equal in size. We do have certainly a marginalized population that could very easily be seen to be alienated. But we also, I think, have a relatively large, what Richard Nixon called silent majority of people who are satisfied with the way things are. So I don't think that the alienated necessarily outnumber in any major way the people who are apathetic because they're largely satisfied. It would be an interesting study. So if there are any young political scientists out there looking to make their reputation, maybe take up this study. You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, created by White Tiger Productions. At White Tiger Productions, we create experiences. If you have an idea for a podcast, a workshop, or a show of any kind, we'll help you go from concept to execution. We provide creative direction and production support. We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it, and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions. You can do what you think, and we can help you. Visit us at youcandowhatyouthink.com and tell us what you're thinking about. Most people think of non-voters as just apathetic, but actually you could say that a big group could be the exact opposite. I'm fine with the world. I don't need things to change. Right. And they could be called apathetic, but it's apathetic from a positive side. It's apathetic about the vote in front of them, but it's not apathetic about the nation. If people are happy with how things are going and they don't vote because of that, then as I said, it's kind of a silent vote for the status quo. And I do think that's a relatively decent sized group of people. I have a feeling that it also fits the silent majority category in the sense that if somebody doesn't vote and they know it's the idea is, well, you're a citizen in a democracy, you're supposed to vote and it's your civic duty and your vote is your voice. There's going to be a certain amount of shame associated with not voting and people will hide that and they won't necessarily talk about it. And they may themselves not even be aware of the fact that it's their satisfaction that is leading to their apathy. Because our civic discourse since the decline of the patronage system has been aimed at getting people to vote based on duty, not out of personal benefit, there is this notion in our political culture that you're a bad citizen if you don't vote. And there could be a bunch of people who don't feel like bad citizens, but they're essentially being shamed for not voting. And I think that that's going to make them hide that from the rest of the world. So we have these two groups of people and typically in elections, they make up the majority of voters. So I'd just like to ask you, and you've kind of touched on this before, can we judge these people? Are these people who don't vote, 
Are they doing a wrong thing? That is, I think, a great question. And what I've been saying so far would indicate that I don't think that we should judge these people. I think what we need to do is we need to pay attention to the reasons why they're not voting. There are two different reasons, and there is actually a third, and I want to get to that a little bit later. But so far, the alienated and the apathetic, we learn different things from looking at those groups of non-voters. The apathetic, we can actually learn that a chunk of people that we haven't measured the size of quite yet, but a chunk of people are fine with the status quo, and so definitely don't judge them. The alienated, what can we learn from them? Well, I think what we can learn from them is that the government is not working for every American. And if we want to have a healthy democracy, if we want to draw into the political system the alienated, then that's going to require making the government work for more people, making it look to the alienated as though it matters who they vote for, that it matters that they get engaged, that they speak to their representatives, that they make their voice heard, not just by voting, but by protesting and by writing their members of Congress, by showing up at town hall meetings. It's going to take a lot, I think, to demonstrate to people who are deeply alienated, to communities that feel underserved or downright attacked by the government, no matter who is in power, whichever party it is. I think it's going to take a lot to get those communities to see that the system is potentially going to work for them and that they have a reason to therefore work within the system. I would not judge those people And I would say that we can learn from that community, those multiple communities, by listening to, well, what is it that you really don't like? And try to address those concerns rather than saying, well, if you don't vote, you can't blame what's going on on anyone else. It's your fault for not voting. I think that actually that's just a way of not listening. So I think it's really important that we listen to the alienated and figure out what will help bring as many of those people into the system as possible. And that's interesting criticism that I've heard about is people saying, if you don't vote, you should be fine with whatever's going on. You shouldn't be angry about it because you didn't try to influence it. But I think that from what we've heard today, the reason they don't vote is because they don't think that their influence doesn't matter. Right. And, you know, saying to people, if you didn't vote, you can't complain is really just a way of silencing these disaffected communities and saying, we're not going to listen to you. But as I said, I think it's really important that we listen to them and not brush off non-voters who are alienated by saying, well, if you didn't vote, then why would we listen to you in other ways? I think that's also a result of the fact that your vote is your voice is kind of our dominant way of thinking about our democratic duties. There are all kinds of ways in a democracy to have our voices heard. And the vote is for a lot of people, especially those who would support smaller third parties who know they're never going to win, saying that your vote is your voice is really just a way of saying, well, you have no voice because your voice is, well, I want a Green Party candidate or a Libertarian or a Socialist. And if you only get to voice your opinion through your vote and your vote would be for a group that's never going to win, then that is really a brush off for sure. But I definitely think we should not say, if you didn't vote, you can't complain. Of course you can complain. And you should complain. And in fact, we, those of us who are voting and who have a stake in the system staying the way it is and who believe that the government can be a force for good for all communities, we actually have an obligation to listen to the disaffected and figure out what it is that would bring them into the system. If we think it's so important that they vote, let's give them a reason to actually come to the polls. That is very interesting. Rather than brushing them off, we should actually probably embrace them and see what's going on. I like that. We also mentioned a third reason why people don't vote. Could you speak to that? Yeah, that's the voter suppression victims. That's the people who actually would like to vote and the various mechanisms that dampen turnout keep them from the polls. 
one of the biggest is the difficulty of getting registered, the difficulty of getting to the ballot box because the number of polling places is small in your area and it's a long commute on public transportation or possibly there's giant line waiting for you at the end. Imagine that you're a person who wants to vote and you also have to support yourself and your family. So to go vote, let's say you had a 45 minute bus ride each direction and you knew that you were going to wait in a three hour line. That is four and a half hours of your day. Now, somebody could say, well, it's so important that you vote. Four and a half hours is nothing in the scope of a lifetime. But that's a major obstacle and a major burden for a lot of people. And so there are an awful lot of people who are victims of various forms of voter suppression. Just suffice it to say that there are a lot of people who would like to vote who do not vote. Politicians themselves don't necessarily have an interest in increasing voter turnout overall. From the point of view of an elected official, the number of voters increasing means that your job of persuasion gets harder. Let's say if there are 100,000 people in your district who are voting, then you need to win 50,001 votes. And so you need to try to reach 50, 60, 70,000 people. If that number goes up by 60%, so now there's 160,000 voters, that's made your job more difficult. And now you have to go out and reach more voters. And that costs time, that costs money, that costs the ability to get more volunteers to go knock on doors. So if you're a candidate for office, either an incumbent running for re-election or a challenger, it's not necessarily in your interest for there to be a massive uptick in voter turnout because that just makes what's already a difficult job more difficult. So elected officials have a kind of perverse disincentive to not seek a greater voter turnout. Those of us who are concerned about voter turnout are people from the outside who say, well, a healthy democracy is one where the vast majority of eligible voters go to the polls on a regular basis, that voter turnout ought to be 80 to 90 percent like it was in the heyday of the 19th century, and that we don't have a healthy democracy without it. So we've seen reasons why people don't vote and incentives to not increase voter turnout. What would you say that we as like people in the United States can do or should do to try to increase voter turnout? I think that one, there ought to be efforts to reduce voter suppression. To me, the biggest group of people that it's sad that they don't vote are those who want to, but the obstacles are numerous. We could start there by fighting against voter suppression of all kinds. Whatever the obstacles are, seek them out and reduce those obstacles. That, I think, is the obligation of the political system. The people who are apathetic, I think that we don't need to do too much about them because if you're satisfied that things are going well and you're not voting because it doesn't really matter to you which party's in power because things are doing all right for you, I'm not sure that we need to try to grab those people and bring them to the polls. It's a weird thing to say, I know, but that could be a sign of success for a society. Things are stable. Things are prosperous. The status quo seems to be relatively decent for a lot of people. That actually is a sign, not necessarily of a healthy democratic system. It's a sign of a healthy society in general. So I know that that's probably not the kind of thing that most people talk about when they talk about lack of voter turnout as a sign of health. Of course, it would be really nice to know what percentage of non-voters are this satisfied, apathetic, silent majority, because if it's a small group, then we can't be cheering ourselves. But if it's a lot of people, then we could say, well, it's the success of the United States that's actually dampening some of our voter turnout. I think that the hardest job 
is going to be to take the alienated and show them that they do have a reason to participate in the system. And I think that it's not even just about showing them, it's about changing things so that it actually is true that more people who currently feel as though they have no stake in the system do in fact have a stake in the system. And I think that's a lot harder. I definitely don't have any answers for that. I think it's way easier to get rid of voter suppression even though, of course, the incentive of elected officials is not to get rid of voter suppression because it makes their job harder. Talk about a hard job, though, is to say to people who are running things, whatever party they're from, we really need to listen hard to the alienated communities so that we can figure out what it is that would get them to want to be more engaged. Because if you're an elected official and you don't have an incentive to try to get more people to the polls, what you really don't have an incentive to do is to change the system to address this form of alienation. And so I'm not sure how to flip the incentives, but that's what I think would be necessary. And so to me, the fact that there's a relatively low voter turnout rate, of course, it's problematic because we would love to have a society where there is nobody who is alienated. And we would love to have a society where everybody who wants to vote actually gets to the polls so that we don't have any voter suppression either. But it seems like the problem we can address in the short to medium term is voter suppression and that how to get rid of widespread alienation. That's a I think that's a bigger multi-generational task. Would you say that listening to these alienated groups and figuring out why they don't vote is a crucial step towards getting them to vote? I think it absolutely is. I think that listening is the hardest part because you're going to hear things you don't want to hear. If you're a member of a state legislature and you go and talk to people who don't vote and they tell you, well, nothing you've ever done has made my life better, I think the natural instinct of an elected official is like, well, but we've done this, this, and this. See, we've done it. It's very easy to get defensive, always. You know, it's a human impulse to get defensive when you're criticized, to say, oh, okay, wait a minute, I'm going to put aside my defensiveness. I'm going to put aside all the things I think that the government has done for these communities, and to then listen hard, that's very difficult to do, but it is an essential task. What could the average person do for this? Do you think the average person could maybe say, to protest, to make these issues a thing? Do you think this is something that average citizens can try and push for? You know, that's a great question. And I don't know, I haven't put a whole lot of thought into what could be a kind of a ground up way of approaching this. I've been speaking as though the solution needs to come from within the government system itself, that elected officials and bureaucrats and future candidates need to go out and listen to these disaffected communities. But what could people who are voters themselves do and talk about lack of incentive. If you're a voter, why would you want to try to convince non-voters who potentially will vote for somebody different than you will to go out and vote? I mean, that's a perverse incentive would be like, okay, you're not voting and you have a whole different view on society than I do. And so if I rope you into the voting system, maybe that's going to dilute my voice my one vote becomes less powerful. Again, I think that just the incentives of the way our democratic system, any democratic system are set up is not towards increasing voter turnout. So I, I see it as both systemic, tied to regular human motivations and incentives. And so I don't see it as anybody's fault. And what that does is it also means that there may not be an easy solution. In fact, there's definitely not an easy solution. So rather than any uh, kind of cynical notes. I wouldn't call that cynical. I would call that realistic. It's that the obstacles to increasing voter turnout in a significant way are pretty difficult. So rather than ending on a real way. Zane just did air quotes there, by the way. 
I'd like to make a plea to the average person, if you care about voter turnout, if you want to see the number of people who vote increase, go out and talk to these people. Why do they not vote? Write to your local legislators, write to your local representatives, write to your national representatives, try and figure out ways to stop voter suppression. Talk to these communities and ask what's going on. Why do you not vote? If citizens start making these issues, I think that politicians will have to pay attention to them. Maybe I'm being too optimistic, but I think that if citizens start to care about this, the politicians will then have to care about it as well. Well, I thank you for that closing statement. I really appreciate your optimism, and I hope that people actually listen to what you just asked them to do. All right. Well, this has been a great interview. Well, thank you for interviewing me. You had some very thoughtful questions, and I really appreciate your final plea to average citizens to go out and try to change the way our political system operates so that we have greater voter turnout. Thanks for having me on. Well, I hope that interview gave you everything you need to know about why people don't vote and perhaps change your perspective or at least broaden your perspective on why it is that people don't vote. This is a long interview already, so I'm just going to say thank you for listening. Going to end this episode, as always, with a song. This is Ruby Calling, a local Portland band doing The Patio.